0: Thank you for tuning in to Emanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Welcome, Emmanuel Faith. It is so good to be together today. If you're joining us online, really grateful that you are here as well. Happy 4th of July weekend to you. I hope you have a great time with family and friends celebrating Uh, tomorrow, the independence that we have, and specifically, the freedom we have to gather together and to do things like what we are doing this morning and worshiping Jesus as King. Amen? Well, as a church, we're in a a long series where we're studying this letter in our New Testament that's called 1 Corinthians. It was written by a man named the Apostle Paul, named the Apostle Paul, in about 54 or 55 A.D., It was written to a church that was located in, any guesses? Corinth, you're dialed in, I love it, okay? And it was a church that had lost its way a little bit, a church that was struggling to figure out what it looked like to live as Orthodox followers of Jesus in a culture that just wanted to pull them apart at every turn. Have you felt in a similar manner? Yeah, I definitely have, which is one of the reasons we decided to study this letter. But I've got to admit at at the get-go this morning, that the passage we're studying today happens to be one of the most challenging passages in all of the New Testament to interpret, okay? In fact, um, I emailed my friend Mark Strauss, Dr. Mark Strauss, this week and about this text, and he wrote back and he said, it is probably the most exegetically difficult passage in the entire Bible. Okay, so lean in. This is going to be Something And at the core of the issue that Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians 11 is the issue of men and women and their unique roles in worship in the early church. So on the surface, I would suggest that this passage may seem a bit restrictive or even oppressive to women. But I think as we study it, we're going to find it to be the exact opposite. And very much in line with what Paul has already written in the letter of 1 Corinthians You know, in the United States, the the sexual revolution really started to gain steam in the early 1960s. And this movement brought about gender wars to the front and center of our news. It had been roughly 40 years since women had gained the right to vote in our country, and feminism continued to sort of gain steam and was certainly on the rise. Women and others were responding to the fact that women were being treated unequally, and they wanted to demand equal rights. Uh, We saw this idea of feminism start to rise to the surface in our country once again after the Roe v. Wade ruling of a little bit over a week ago. It jumped to the front of our news apps once again. And please hear me, please hear me on this. I am not knocking feminism. I think the movement was much needed to a large degree. Women's suffrage addressing the glass ceiling in workplaces, and the overall oppression of women needed to be addressed. Please hear me say that. But I think if you look around the world today, what you'll see is places that it wasn't addressed, where women are overtly oppressed, those places are not flourishing. However, however, gender wars are not a modern-day phenomenon. You know this, right? That this is a tale as old as time. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God is speaking to Eve, to woman, and he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall, what? He shall rule over you. And God was essentially saying that there was going to be conflict between husbands and wives as a result of sin and as a result of the fall, that men were going to want to rule over or dominate and women were going to to be contentious in response. And I think we can see the truth of that prophetic word played out in boardrooms and bedrooms all throughout history. It simply has come to fruition. But that conflict doesn't just stop or stage outside of the church. This conflict comes right into the church and it comes right onto this stage with questions like who should be allowed to teach? Oh, it got really quiet. <laughs> got really quiet. You're allowed to breathe, okay? Who should be on stage? Who should be allowed to pray? Who should lead worship? And there are battle lines that have been drawn over that topic. And that issue for centuries. And that's the very issue that we are jumping into in our study of 1 Corinthians today. And here's what we're going to see. That the issue of gender in worship was a hot topic in ancient Corinth, just like it is in some areas today. Now, now later on in this series, we're going to cover the topic of women and leadership and spiritual leadership and what that looked like or didn't look like in the early church. But that's not our focus for today. Specifically today, we are talking about the worship gathering. So if you have a Bible, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And today I'm going to be using the New American Standard Bible translation instead of the normal ESV that I usually teach out of. Because in all humility, I think that the ESV absolutely butchers this passage in its translation. And here's why. If you have an ESV in front of you, you'll notice that there are some places where it uses the word man and some places it uses the word husband. There's some places it uses the word wife and sometimes it uses the word woman. Now, there's only one Greek word being used. Man, one for man and one for woman and so I think the best translation keeps that consistent throughout the entire passage. The NASB does that, so does the NIV, and so I'd invite you to have either one of those in front of you, or you could get your ESV little journal that we uh, gave you at the beginning of the series and cross out every time it says husband, or every time it says wife, and just write in man or in woman, okay? You're allowed to do that um, if, uh, if you bought it, <laughs> so it's yours, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starting in verse 2. Are you there? I'm going to read the entire section to give you a good overview of where we're going, and then we'll walk back through it verse by verse. Paul wrote this. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Verse 7. For a man ought not to shave his, uh, sorry, verse seven. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. We'll come back to that. (laughs) For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Well, I think that clears it all up. Let's just close in prayer. (laughs) If you are wondering what in the world that means, you're in good company. Because most of the commentaries that I read all disagreed with each other, and they had a hard time figuring out sort of what the handles are in this text. And luckily, I'm going to solve all of those problems for you today. (laughs) Now there's a lot, yeah, praise God, there's a lot that we are going to talk about today that is culturally grounded in Corinth at the time of Paul's writing. And I think we've recognized that. You'll notice that when you look around, very few people are wearing head coverings. You'll also notice that we don't have an issue with men who have long hair. I know that neither of these are issues because none of you have sent me emails about them. (laughs) So what's the point that Paul's making? What's he trying to say in all of this? Let me sort of give you the broad strokes, what I think his main point is, and then we'll dive in and we'll see it played out in the verses. Here's his main point is that worship of Jesus must be culturally sensitive but biblically formed. It must be culturally sensitive in this case specific to the to the Corinthian culture, sensitive to some of their norms, but we cannot lose hold of the biblical mandates that are in front of us. And sometimes you guys sometimes this means that the church will be seen as uber conservative and out of touch with the times, and sometimes it will mean the exact opposite, that the church is progressive and maybe on the front edge of society. And I would argue that in this passage, we're gonna see that the Corinthian church was pushing the limits of what the norms were within Corinth at the time. Women were in a place of worship leadership. In a culture that wasn't entirely familiar with that, and so therefore, Paul made, paid extra attention to what needed to be done in order for women to lead in a way that was culturally acceptable. So let's dive in and let's see what he has to say to us. Verse two, Paul wrote this. He said, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is the first time in the New Testament that we see that there's some sort of formalized Christian tradition that's being passed down from one teacher to another and being executed, certainly with cultural nuance, but in each of the cultures that Christianity was starting to take root in. And what were the traditions around? They were around men and women and their roles and functions and attire as they led worship. And some of these traditions, Paul's gonna go, you're doing great. And then other parts of him, he's going, "Eh, we need a little adjustment there. But that's what he's speaking into. So listen to him as he begins his argument. Here's what he says. But I want you to understand that Christ is the, what? Head of every man. And the man is the, what? Head of woman. And that God is the, of Christ. Now, I'm going to give you three guesses as to what an important word in this verse is. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Head. Yeah. And it's it's even more challenging. It's challenging in general, but this word is challenging to define because all throughout this passage, you'll notice that Paul oscillates between using this in a literal way, meaning the thing that is held up by your neck, your noggin, and in a metaphorical way. And so in this case, it's used as a metaphor. And what does it mean when it's used as a metaphor? I really think that there are two options. The first would be to read this as men are the, or or to, to use it in a way of authority, right? So it might read something like this. Christ is the authority over man. Man is the authority over woman. And God is the authority over Christ. And while that's a common reading for many people, I don't think it's the best interpretation of what's going on in verse 3. I take the second option, which is to interpret head as, quote-unquote, the origin of. And primarily, I take that view in regards to verse 3 because that's the point that Paul is going to make all throughout this passage. Just go down to verse 8 and verse 12, and you will see him do that quite clearly. So it seems to me that this verse should be read as something like this. The origin of every man is Christ, meaning that Christ is the agent of God in creation. We've already seen this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. The origin of woman is man. The head of woman is man. And that's alluding to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. And it's such an important text for this passage that I want you to see it so that we can start to get a handle on what Paul is arguing. Listen to the way that this passage out of Genesis reads. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man is the origin of woman because she was taken from man's side. I think that's what Paul's arguing in verse 3. And then finally, the origin of Christ is God. Admittedly, whether you um, see this as authority or origin, this is the most challenging of all the phrases. But I think what Paul means is that Christ is the Messiah and the origin of the Messiah is God. Or in the language of the Nicene Creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Or, as Gordon Fee, the great commentator, writes, it refers to the incarnational work of Christ as another way of affirming Christ's divinity. Either way, either way, I would suggest to you that what Paul is not arguing for is some sort of subordination, but rather a distinction amongst the different genders. He's very interested in what happens at creation, male and female. And in some way, what happens at creation applies to what happens on this stage or in worship in general. So after referencing Genesis chapter 2, the account of creation, he moves into the Corinthian church and he starts his exposition on male and female distinctions in leadership. And listen to what he writes he says this, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Okay. Let me point out a few things that are going on here. Put the issue of head coverings off to the side for just a moment. I know that's challenging because you all walked in here wondering about head coverings, okay? So just put it off to the side for a moment and let's zoom up and see what we can see about what's going on in worship, in the church in Corinth, and then we'll come back to the issue of head coverings. See, because what's going on in the church in Corinth is this whole section is revolving around praying and prophesying during worship. And so we see that both men and women are doing this. We don't have a big issue with prayer or questions about prayer. We sort of understand that. But my, my thought is you're probably wondering, what does that word prophecy mean? Well, Here's what it means. It means two things. One, to foretell or to look forward to something that's coming in the future. And to maybe say to a church community, I think this is coming and, and we should be prepared for it. Let's, let's at least test that word before God. The other thing it means is forthtelling. Uh, more of a, thus saith the Lord. Or you can even see it as a, as, a, as a teaching. Or Anthony Thistleton, the um, great commentator on 1 Corinthians, puts it this way. He says, it's the public proclamation of the gospel truth as applied pastorally and contextually to the hearers. And what we see in Corinth is that both men and women are participating in this during the worship gatherings. Now, When it came to the functional role of prayer and prophecy, men and women seemed to have done it equally. They were just dressed differently when they were doing it. And then finally, notice that head coverings were only required while somebody was praying or prophesying. That's interesting. Essentially, when they got done, the women got done praying or prophesying, they could, boom, pop their head covering off and go back and sit with the rest of the congregation. So there's something about that role that Paul is addressing For the early Christian church. And I believe that it's this, that men and women were distinct in gender, but that they were equal in function, in that they both prayed and prophesied. Now, you might be wondering, like I was, why in the world would Paul say to men, don't wear head coverings? I mean, we see men wearing head coverings even now, Within Judaism, with a yarmulke, it was quite common in the Greco-Roman world for men to wear head coverings. So why does Paul seem to reverse that trend that had been going and would continue to go long after his writings? Great question. I think if you go back and read verse 4, you could read verse 4 as condemning a man for, quote, having anything hanging from his head. That would be a literal Greek rendering of what's going on in verse 4. And so a lot of commentators would suggest that the meaning is more about men having long hair rather than men not having a literal covering on their head. And Paul's point would be then about blurring gender differences rather than about Subordination in some way. This is a point that Paul will come back to in verse 14. If you want, you can jump down there and read it right now. So the idea is that when men and women are praying and prophesying, they should do it distinctly as the men and women God created them to be. Not trying to pretend that they're somebody else while they are leading the church in worship. Men had short hair, typically. Women had long hair, typically. And Paul didn't want The Christian freedom the church had begun to realize to alter those cultural norms. However, however, the issue that Paul addresses next is that women's hair was often seen as beautiful. No amens for that. Okay, whatever. And that it had the potential to distract from the point of worship. That's precisely why women were instructed to wear head coverings while praying and prophesying. It did two things. Number one, it preserved the distinctions between men and women in the church. Women were allowed to keep their long, beautiful, flowing hair and remain a part of worship. Both were able to prophesy, men and women, able to pray, able to prophesy, but in a way that was befitting to their unique identity. It solved the problem, (laughs) at least in Corinth, of a woman leading worship in a way that might have been seen as indecent exposure to the Corinthian culture. Now, even in Song of Solomon, we see that hair is often viewed as being, well, beautiful. Listen to what Solomon wrote. He said, behold, you are beautiful my love, behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, now all the, tell the single men out there, might I suggest you put this verse to memory and use it whenever needed, right? Oh, come on, girl, you're looking good. Your hair is like goats running down the field. <laughs> Oh, how's that for a pickup line, right? (laughs) Yeah, the man leading in worship shouldn't have long flowing hair. And the woman leading in worship shouldn't allow her long flowing hair to be exposed and therefore distract from the point of worship, which is ultimately exalting and lifting high the name of Jesus. So in a modern day setting, we might apply something like this as akin to saying to a worship leader who is a man, no, you cannot wear that deep V-neck cut or those really, really ultra skinny jeans while you're, wearing, while you're leading worship. And we might say to a woman, listen, it wouldn't be best if you wore the ultra skinny jeans while you lead or the short skirt or the tight skirt. Or let's practice modesty so that we don't detract from the reason that we are here, which is ultimately Jesus. As Umberto Eco said, I am speaking through my clothes. And indeed, we do. Which is why people are so consumed with the way that they dress. And Paul wants the message of the church to be solely and only about Jesus, not about hair and not about beauty. Now, here's the thing. How easy would it have been for Paul to say, listen, ladies leading in worship and prayer and prophecy is just too challenging of an issue for us to tackle. Let's just let the men handle that. But he doesn't do that. He makes distinct provision for the women to be a part of the worship service. He goes above and beyond in order to make a way for them to be a distinct part, wear a head covering. And he goes, well, problem solved, sort of. (laughs) And if we define equality as uniformity, men and women are just all the same, then I don't think we've captured the biblical thrust of what's being taught here. Men and women are different. But that's part of God's beautiful and good design. And with their differences, they are both equally involved. And they're both equally needed for the church to become all that God designed it to be. Now, I think verse 6 is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, almost comical interlude before Paul moves on to his next point. Listen to what he says. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. His alternative to hair coverings is you could just cut your hair off or you could shave it off. But he goes, that probably wouldn't be all that great of an idea. And my guess is Paul in some way had Will Smith in his mind just waiting to come and bop him for that one, right? Okay, too soon, too soon. (laughs) Yeah, I think what he's saying is fairly simple. His solution is simple. Keep your hair, cover it, and keep leading worship, ladies. And now what Paul does is he circles back to Genesis chapter 2. Because it appeared that some within Corinth were held up on and making a big deal out of the fact that men were created first. Remember, that's where we started in verse 3. And this is one of those passages that has gotten Paul labeled as sort of a male chauvinist. But I don't think that if we read Paul rightly here, that that's in any way, shape, or form fair. Listen to what he writes. He said this, verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, (laughs) since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. No coffee mugs with that one on it that I've seen, at least. (laughs) Not only that, but this doesn't seem to align with the Genesis 1 story of creation that we have in the scriptures. In Genesis 1, it's really clear that both men and women together are the image of God. Listen, Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female are created in the image of God. So why is Paul claiming that only man is created in the image of God? What in the world? Has he lost sight of Genesis 1? Is he off the rails? What is he? Is he writing something that's contradictory to that? What's he saying? And so because it was so confusing, I reached out to Dr. Mark Strauss, my good friend, my phone-a-friend, right? Mark, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm teaching 1 Corinthians 11, right? And I write to him and I'm like, what in the world do we do with this phrase in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7? And here's what Mark said. He suggested that Paul is playing with language like the rabbis used to, to make a theological point by playing off two meanings of quote-unquote man. So he's saying, in one instance, the man should be unveiled or not wearing a head covering since he symbolically represents God's glory. God created Man, And we want to exalt God's glory in worship. Amen? The woman should be veiled since she symbolically represents man's or humanity's glory. And we should not exalt humanity in worship. Mark pointed out that it is a symbolic representation, but it says nothing about status or superiority of one sex over the other. Now, I don't know if you agree with his interpretation. In my opinion, it's the best I've read, but if you have a better one, um, you can email it to me. (laughs) So the woman isn't subordinate to man, but a necessity for him. And listen to the way Paul goes on. He says this, verse eight. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. He's just simply going back to Genesis chapter two. He said, remember the story? A woman was taken out of man's side. She originates from him. That's his point. Verse 9. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now what's the business about woman being made for man? I think some have erroneously taken this verse to mean that the reason that we have women is to serve men. And I don't think that that's an accurate representation of what Paul is saying. See, in the Genesis story that Paul is referencing, woman was not created to be a servant of man. She was created to be a helper for man, or in the Hebrew, it was the word ezer. Will you say that with me? Ezer. That word is used 21 times in scripture, helper, used 21 times in scripture. 16 of those, it's used directly to referring to God himself. God is an easer more than anyone else in all of scripture. So when we read that, we shouldn't hear somebody who's weak or somebody who's helpless. We should read somebody who's strong coming alongside another person who is in need. And in the Genesis 2 story, the person who was in need was Adam. Of Adam, it was said, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, God created And Paul's point is that men and women are designed to complement each other, not to compete with one another, to meet each other's needs, to see each other's deficiencies, to step in where there's a quote-unquote weakness, just like Eve stepped in when it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. See, that's true in origin. It's true in biology, as we'll see in a few verses, it's true in worship, Paul says. Men and women, in a beautiful way, cover each other's deficiencies, and they meet just like a perfect puzzle piece each other's needs. And I would argue that this is a truly complementarian position, but that's devoid of hierarchy. This reading of the text, I think, helps explain why women from all over the Greco-Roman world flocked to the church. Women of high social standing said, I want to be a part of that movement. But I'm also aware that this position makes me almost no friends. (laughs) It's rejected by those who favor a more patriarchal read of this text. And it's rejected by a culture at large that wants to blur gender differences. However, I think it's what Paul is saying. So cancel me if you must. Verse 10, Paul continues. He says, therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, obviously. (laughs) We'll come back to that in just a moment. I had always read this the woman ought to have a symbol on her head that she is under authority. But I don't think that that's what Paul is saying. See, it could be translated that she needs to keep control over her head. She needs to have authority over her head. She needs to say to those curls, "Uh uh-uh, you get up in this head covering, right? It could be read that way. Or I think better that the head covering is a symbol of her authority, a picture of her rightful place as a prophetic and prayerful voice in the worshiping community, that just like a queen wears a crown on her head when a female has a prophetic word or a prayerful word to share with the community, her head covering is a visible sign that she belongs in that place sharing that word. It was a picture of the reality that women and men were leading worship in the church together. So what about the angels? I don't know, let's pray about that one and just move on. No, I'm just kidding. It was a rabbinic tradition that the angels looked on as God created the world in absolute awe. The best explanation that I've read for because of the angels came from a scholar named Kenneth Bailey, and he wrote this. He said, the angels praised God at the first creation. Let them praise the fact of your women who were praying and prophesying, your restored status in the new creation. And let the image of God in which you were created shine forth through your prophetic word. So it seems to me that Paul didn't want the onlooking angels to discard the prophetic and prayerful word the women were bringing simply because they weren't wearing head coverings. I guess the angels are into preserving gender distinctives or they're just really attracted to hair. And either way, either way, Paul wanted to help the angels out on this one also. So verse 11, he continues talking about creation, but he moves it more into the Corinthians modern day. Listen to what he says. He says, however, so this is set in a little bit of contrast to what he's just talked about in verses eight through 10. However, in the, whom? In the Lord or in the church, you might read, those who are part of the family of God, Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For the wom- as the woman originates from the man, that's Genesis chapter 2, woman came from man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. So Paul says, oh, oh hey, let's not forget that every man created after Adam came from a woman. Right. Right. It's like, so let's not get too carried away with this man was created first business, right? And all things originate from God. Now, let's just notice at least the fact that this potentially looks, at least on the surface, like it conflicts with verse 8, which says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. But it's clear that verse 8 is talking about Genesis chapter 2, and the verses 11 through 12, Paul's referencing the rest of the story. The order of creation is reversed in subsequent procreation. And so he's essentially saying, hey men, don't get too carried away with this, I was created first business. Because after Adam, all of you came from a woman anyway. And his main point is, men and women, you do not function independently of one another, but you function interdependently with one another. That quite literally, men and women need each other. But I think he's also saying that you're better together. And I believe that in doing so, he's cautioning us about making man-made, fall-informed, hierarchical structures because everything comes from God anyway. Anyway. Sin in the fall would love for us to divide and create hierarchical structures that posture men and women at odds with one another. But hierarchy makes no sense when we realize mutuality is absolutely necessary. And Paul's saying it's necessary biologically, but it's also necessary in worship. Verse 13. Paul says, judge for yourselves. And we're like, we will. Um, Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? I guess unless he's taken a Nazarite vow or unless he's a Spartan or the list could go on. Remember, we're talking culturally here in Corinth. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory for her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So once again, Paul brings this cultural argument back front and center, reaffirming the differences, God-given and good, in the different genders. And he's specifically saying there are differences in the way that people keep and take care of and present their hair in public. This picture of if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory, I think, is a reason that Paul is saying she ought to cover her hair when she is leading and helping to lead in worship. Verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice... Nor have the churches of God. And I think what we could just summarize Paul saying is that simply, please don't fight over a problem that has an easy solution. I think that's what he's saying. Don't settle for worship services that think equality means uniformity, where everybody has to look the same. Honor the gifting of the women among you, don't allow for women to be distracting. Use head coverings. It's an easy solution. And then you can get on with worship. That's his point. And I think we could summarize it by saying, Paul's teaching the Corinthian church to accommodate cultural norms where possible, but to never compromise your biblical convictions. Men and women functioning equally in the prayerful and prophetic roles of the worship service. Men and women complementary to each other, not in competition with one another. And men and women recognizing that they are interdependent. The other is necessary for their flourishing. I think that clears it all up. With all humility, I will stand before you and say... I spent dozens and dozens of hours trying to figure out what in the world did this mean to them? What does it mean to us? And you may very well disagree with the teaching that I've brought today. And I would just say, that's okay. We can still coexist together. That's okay. You can send your emails to jrose um, uh, efcc.org. I'm just kidding. But let me summarize what I think Paul is saying. Worship must be culturally sensitive but biblically formed. Worship ought to include something prophetic and prayerful that's shared by both men and women. And worship ought to reflect creation and biology where men and women were created to have unique God-given distinctions that function together to make a more beautiful whole. I think that's what Paul's saying. And to me, that's pretty relevant for 2022. And it all comes from a teaching on head coverings, which I have to admit is a little bit surprising. Oh, and by the way, we will have EFCC branded head coverings for sale (laughs) in the lobby right after service because a bunch of y'all are out of compliance. Let's pray. Let's pray. So Lord, as we get ready to move toward um, the communion table, I pray, Spirit of God, would you just speak to our hearts? What is it that you'd want us to hear? Father, I pray that the words that I spoke this morning that are from you, that they would sink deeply, that they'd be seeds that would bear fruit. And Lord, anything that isn't of you, that it would just pass away. But we wanna come before you as your church, collectively, men and women, with the gifts that you've given us, the genders that you've assigned to us, the role that you've called us to, the gifts that you've given. And Lord, we want those to be utilized for the glory of your name and the joy of all people. So we pray that you would have your way in us, through us, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.